You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. Later, we'll hear how yearly checkups have been checked out. We were not really aware of any strong evidence that they that they did work very well on 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 hard outcomes compared to surrogates. So so we thought we'd uh, investigated. But first. You may have noticed that the BMJ has an open data campaign running. From Tamiflu to HIPS, we want to see the underlying numbers behind the research papers. Linked to that, Trish Groves, one of the BMJ's deputy editors, has been at an EMA workshop looking to improve the availability of trial data that underpin their decisions. We're at the European Medicines Agency in London and today's been a big day because um, it's been a workshop here on how to share the data that underpin the clinical trials that are submitted to the agency for the approval of drugs. So that's a really important issue and one that the BMJ has has long campaigned on. And I've got with me here um, some people who've, who've taken part in the workshop. Um, so first of all, uh, I have Beata Wiesler from ICWIG, and I'll let Beata introduce herself briefly. And then, um, Beata, perhaps you could tell us what are the three main messages or important things that you've taken away from this afternoon. Yes, thank you very much. So actually, uh, ICWIG is a health technology assessment agency in Germany, and we are assessing, among other things, also drugs. And the outcome of our assessment is important for decisions in the German healthcare system, and therefore is affecting patient treatments. Um, as such, uh, we we are dependent on having a complete um, evidence base to come to meaningful assessments and uh, decisions. And this has been uh, so far pretty difficult because, I mean, we all know about the problem of publication bias and most health technology assessment agencies are depending on working with publicly available evidence uh, in contrast to regulatory agencies, actually. Um, So this has been a problem. And also in ICWIC assessments, we have struggled to get all data on a drug uh, which we had to assess. So this meeting has been extremely important from my point of view. The most important thing, I think, was said in the very beginning where Ema made a very strong statement saying that we aren't discussing if clinical data should be made publicly available, but only about how this will be done. Of course, you could start debating about this issue, especially with all the problems with patient confidentiality for years. And I think it's another positive move of EMA that they have uh, provided a a schedule, a time schedule. During the day, I haven't haven't heard any new argument against the uh, full publication of all clinical trial data. So I think we have made an important step forward today. So now over to Ginny Barber from PLOS. Okay, so um, I'm uh, the chief editor at PLOS Medicine and also uh, the medicine editorial director there. Um, We're an open access publisher. We've had a long interest in access, open access to publications and open access to data is uh, one of the things that we're now particularly interested in. So the things that I got of today, um, it was fantastic, I think, to have at the very beginning, the um, EMA make a commitment to making this happen. At the end of the day, we had a great surprise in which they put a timetable on it. So come January the 1st, 2014, there will be access to these data. Um, I think that's an enormous step forward and one that I honestly was not expecting at the beginning of today. Um, What I heard during the day was a lot of discussion about um, uh, practicalities, which is, I think, is where all of the big issues are going to need to be hammered out. And the 
plan from EMA is that those will be done during the course of the year and there's a fantastic opportunity to be involved in those. I think, however, the thing I found most disappointing was that there is still some resistance from the pharmaceutical industry to making this happen or the understanding that it is going to happen. And clearly there needs to be strong engagement with them over the next year to make them understand really why this is important and in the end how it's going to benefit them. Well, thanks, Ginny. And last but not least, we have Ben Gildacre. Ben, you can introduce yourself and then fire away. Oh, hi. I'm a research fellow in epidemiology at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, working on problems in clinical trials. And I wrote a book called Bad Science and a column called that and a book called Bad Pharma on bad behaviour by drug companies most recently. Um, I thought this was a fantastic, fantastic day. The European Medicines Agency has had an extremely chequered history. There was the reputational disaster of their resistance to being transparent with the information they had about clinical trials. And I, I hope that this is the beginning of them um, undoing some of that bad work. It was remarkable to see them put a, a proper firm deadline on when they're going to start sharing clinical trial data and really, really heartening also to hear them just make simple, positive, declarative statements that this stuff needs to be done. Um, it is always remarkable to come across people from industry who are willing to stand up and say, even now, that clinical trial data belongs to them. To try and make the argument that information about the safety and benefits of drugs can legitimately be withheld from patients. I think that's extraordinary and I think it's something that people could only say in the kind of obfuscatory technical language that happens in a meeting like this. I think if any of them were actually invited to sit down and, and say to a patient who was taking a drug, we think it's acceptable that we should be allowed to withhold important information about the safety and risks of the drugs that you're taking, I think they'd find that they got a very, very harsh reception. And so because of that, I think, you know, the more that we can get this discussion into the public domain, the better, because ultimately this is about patients and the public. And not only do people have a, have a dog in this fight, um, but also I think patients and the public often have a lot to contribute to this because the public doesn't just mean random people on the Clapham omnibus. It means lawyers, coders, lobbyists, policy people, people from industry, all kinds of individuals who have something valuable to contribute on how we can make this kind of thing work better and who'll have experience in their own fields. One thing I'd say just very finally is, amazingly, we, we heard during the meeting that the UK Parliament Health Select Committee are going to have uh, an inquiry into missing clinical trial data urgently, I think built around the forthcoming clinical trials regulation, which is extremely problematic and just about to go to rapporteur stage in the European Union Parliament. So these are very, very interesting times and I hope it will be the, the beginning of the end of what is undoubtedly a very dark period in medicine's history. And if you want to read more about our open data campaign, go to bmj.com slash Tamiflu. Overdiagnosis and overtreatment is becoming more of a concern generally in medicine, but that focus tends to be more on specific tests like breast cancer screening. But research published online on bmj.com this week looks at general health checks, and I'm talking to one of the authors of that paper, Lasse Krogsbull, from the Nordic Cochrane Centre. So, um, Lasse, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, you're welcome. Now, you've decided to look at these general health checks. What prompted that? Well, um, there was... Uh some uh, considerations in our country about whether to implement a, an offer of general health checks for the general population then, uh, um, and also health checks were becoming uh, quite popular and um, 
and we were not really aware of any strong evidence that they that they did work very well on 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 hard outcomes mm. uh, compared to surrogates so so we thought we'd uh, investigated now in your analysis you compared trials of general health checks with uh, no health checks so how did that break down on a sort of population basis? I mean, were you able to compare within countries, or were you comparing, say, the USA to uh, to France, for example? Well, in, t- in terms of population, uh, then our criteria were they had to be uh, older than eighteen, and we didn't include trials which uh, were strictly focused on elderly people, that is, people over sixty-five. Um, but the the main criterion was that they had to be unselected for diseases or risk factors. So we wouldn't look at health checks in people uh, who all had hypertension or people who all had heart disease. Mm. We wanted to look at general populations because that's the the, the relevant question uh, for us. So that's the population. In terms of countries, uh, most trials were done in Europe, uh, uh, not very many in the United States. So the comparisons between Europe and the United States were not very informative. Okay. Now, how did you define for this study a general health check? Um, Because presumably they mean different things in in different countries and different health systems. Yes, definitely. Um, We chose to take a broad perspective on this and and defined it in a a very uh, broad and general way. We defined it as screening for more than one uh, disease or risk factor and more than one uh, organ system. Um, And... uh, so, so, that, so of course, the health checks differ somewhat, but they don't differ altogether. They all seem to have a, a core of uh, screening for cardiovascular risk factors. And then we, um, we describe in the review the, the, the different tests that were used in addition. Mm. So um, now if we talk about sort of outcomes which we're looking at, you were looking at, uh, as your primary outcome, mortality and, dis- and disease-specific mortality. And then you had a range of secondary outcomes, including mobility, um, referrals to specialists, self-reported uh, health, things like that. Um, and obviously all that is available online for people to have a look at. But why did you choose mortality as a primary outcome as opposed to perhaps morbidity, which um, which people might think would perhaps be, be more informative in this case? Well, <clears throat> we certainly also consider morbidity important, and we, uh, of course, uh, looked very carefully for that. But uh, we chose mortality because it's uh, the most reliable outcome. It's uh, usually quite reliable to look at registers uh, to see how many people died. Uh, mm. In terms of uh, uh, causes of death, uh, there might be some bias in some cases uh, with the classification, but it's still also quite reliable. Morbidity is a bit more difficult because you need to establish what what exactly is the disease. Mm. So we chose mortality for bias reasons. That's primarily and also because it incorporates all benefits and of most benefits or harms in a, in in that outcome. So we thought it it probably reflects pretty good what's going on. Sure. Now, I mean, you mentioned the sort of quality of the data there. Um, how good do you think your data was? I mean, you said you found in the end. 16 trials, but two of them hadn't even published, so you had to exclude them. So how happy were you with the sort of breadth of data that you were uh, had available to play with? Well, I didn't expect that we would find so, much, so many trials in this. Uh, and some of the trials we found were seemed to have been uh, forgotten uh, in the literature. They had been cited uh, very few times, mm. a couple of them. 
but all in all, uh, I'm surprised we found so much data, particularly on uh, on mortality. Uh, I'm a bit surprised <laughs> in the other direction, so to speak, regarding the harms. We didn't find very much on the harms. Um, we found only one trial which compared the total number of diagnoses in, in the intervention and control group, uh, and that trial found a, a, a substantial increase in the number of new diagnoses. And other harmful effects like uh, overtreatment were also very scarcely studied, and things like uh, the amount of uh, follow-up tests uh, following the uh, health check. Some of these tests can be invasive, and we didn't find anything on that. Okay. Or the amount of surgery, we found nothing on that. And how about things like, I mean, you've, you you mentioned that some of your secondary outcomes, things like self-reported health and uh, patient you know, experiences, things like that. So how good was the data in that sort of more qualitative way? Um, those outcomes are, of course, more difficult to assess in terms of bias because they're self-reported and you can't really blind people to whether they have a health check <laughs> or not. Uh, but we in, we included them anyway because they 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 seem seem to be important outcomes. Um, regarding uh, self-reported health, we found four trials that investigated that. Two trials didn't find an effect, and two trials found small effects. But they were quite small, and uh, and we think that they they could could just as well have been due to uh, to reporting bias due to the lack of blinding. Okay, um, so once you've you kind of worked through all this and boiled down the data. What did you find? Do health checks keep you healthier? Um, well, at the very least, we can say that we didn't find any evidence that health checks keep you healthier. Um, and we we believe that we found quite a lot of evidence uh, that they do not have an effect, at least on mortality. Mm. And, and um, also some of our other outcomes that were uh, also moderately well studied also found uh, no effects. So we, we think we we can make more than just the conclusion of absence of evidence. We think it's, it, given these data, it's very unlikely that health checks are, uh, uh, are reducing mor- uh, mortality. Mm. Don't think they're beneficial. So on balance then, would you suggest to uh, Denmark, your country which, which prompted you doing this research, would you say that they shouldn't uh, introduce general health checks? Well, uh, uh, I would say that if you, if you want to... Uh, to introduce a screening program, uh, you should have evidence that it's uh, more beneficial than harmful. And I think that's a, a very uncontroversial statement. I think most people mm-hmm. agree on that. Um, so, so, so following that, I would, I would say that uh, that is probably a, a reasonable decision uh, the, uh, that the Danish government has made to put these things on hold. Mm. And we should just obviously say that these are general health checks. You weren't looking at uh, specific interventions within them and you weren't looking at um, the health checks of people who have a pre-existing condition. Oh, yes. Been. Very important thing to remember. We also have to remember that one of the reasons we think are likely for our, uh, the lack of results in this is that the control groups in these trials, uh, they probably, uh, we assume they had access to their general practitioner and these general practitioners might very well have been doing some preventive uh, tests and treatments, and people you judge might benefit from it instead of, of doing it uh, on all. So uh, so one, one way to phrase the conclusion is that the systematic effort did not help, uh, did not add any benefit compared to what GPs were doing to begin with. Great. Well, uh, Lassie Krugsball, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. You're welcome. And Lasso's research is now available online for free on bmj.com. That's all for this week. 
Next week, we'll be back looking at how to administer transexamic acid in patients at risk of bleeding and uncertainty in the use of oxygen. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.